This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Welcome, Carla. I'm so glad to have you here with us today. Hello. So I know we're all here to talk about embracing anxiety, and these are certainly anxiety-provoking times. But before we dive deep into anxiety, I'm hoping we can just talk a little bit about how you got into this work and the broader topic of emotions and your grand unified theory of emotions. So where should we begin? Where do we begin with emotions? Emotions, I have come to see, are the foundation of everything we do, everything we think, all of our behaviors, our actions, our ideas. But we have been taught to deny, suppress, overexpress, ignore, or, or treat emotions as a problem in and of themselves. And what I have come to realize is that emotions are not the problem. Emotions come forward to bring you the gifts and skills you need to deal with the problem. So when I think there's been for many centuries what I call the fundamental attribution error of emotions, which is when there's trouble, there's a lot of emotions, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. you would think trouble, emotions, let's get rid of the emotions. And the emotions come to help. So looking at it that way, you're like, look at all the skills I have. (laughs) Look at all this genius. Rather than go away, you terrible emotions. So um, each emotion has its own specific gift and skill and form of intelligence. And so my work, Dynamic Emotional Integration, or DEI, is about connecting with the emotions again, even though we've had centuries of training in how to, well, distrust them and sometimes hate them. Thank you. It's, it's magnificent work that you're bringing forward into the world. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I'm imagining if I'm listening to your work out there and, and hearing that emotions are in fact our friends, Um, If I were to play devil's advocate, part of me wants to say, but they're so painful sometimes, right? If someone were to say, Carla, how could this be good? It hurts so much. What might you say? I would say a lot of things. But um, (laughs) the first thing I would say is, for instance, let's say grief. Grief comes forward when someone or something that you care about or love has died. It's gone forever. There's nothing you can do about it. You didn't choose it. It's done. And grief is a very, very powerful emotion, as you know. And people are, feel pain, and they attribute the pain to the grief. Rather than attributing the pain to the fact that the person or the idea or the thing or the job or whatever has died and it will never come back. Mm. And so grief comes to help. And a lot of people look at the grief and say, get away from me. You're horrible. Um, and so each emotion has, a, a lot of people have these, this relationship with many emotions in that they 
they attribute the trouble to the emotion rather than understanding that the emotion comes to help with the specific trouble. And sometimes more than one comes. So if you don't like emotions very much and there's trouble, you may feel that the emotions are just making your life miserable, right? Yeah. Can you give some more examples of, of how emotions help, maybe specific emotions and what they help us with? Each emotion has its own gig that it does. Um, I'll start with anger. Anger helps us understand what we value and it helps us set boundaries uh, around what is important to us. And that's anger's job. Now, how we learn to work with anger is completely up to us. Although, is it really up to us if we've never been taught thing one about it, right? Mm -hmm. So how I say what's valuable to me and how I set boundaries around it, that is on me to develop skills if I can. You know, where do you develop these skills, right? So I can set boundaries with violence. I can refuse to set boundaries and I can be very passive or I can set a clear boundary so that everybody knows what's going on with me. And me and my anger are, we're, we're pals, right? Um, another one is fear. Fear gets a terrible rap. There's so many terrible messages about fear. But it's basically your instincts and in your intuition about the present moment. So fear helps you key into what is happening, what, what's happening there. Are there changes? Is anything different? Is anything making a transition? I'm, my fear is, is aware of the present moment. Um, and fear, unfortunately, is um, squished together with anxiety and panic. Mm. And so when people think of fear, they usually think of like, <gasps> like that, mm. which that could be, but that's usually panic. Panic is the emotion that comes forward when your life is in danger. And so it brings that intense fight, flee, or freeze emotions, very powerful emotion but it's not fear. They're different emotions. And then our poor friend anxiety gets squashed in between fear and panic. And anxiety's job is to look toward the future and bring you the energy and intelligence you need to gather everything you need to show up in the future skillful and well-resourced and you did your job and your tasks are completed and you hit your deadlines. And sometimes anxiety can be very intense because you got nine deadlines tomorrow, right? Uh -huh. So you may want to be calm at that point, but I would, I would question why if it's all due tomorrow, right? I would also question where's your delegation skills? Why, you know, why didn't you set a boundary around any of that, that sort of thing. But, but each of these emotions kind of gets treated as a problem when actually the emotions are coming to help you with the problem. Got it. So what I'm hearing is that fear is about right now and anxiety is about the future and that anxiety's job is to mobilize you to pay attention to the future and engage to take the steps now that make for a good future. Do I have that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you do, if you and your anxiety are good friends, I call it time travel that works. 
it's it's you know you can look back and you go thank you Carla for in the past uh-huh. that was awesome right so like a scout that gets out ahead and reports back and says here's what we need from you from the future yeah 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 finish that thing and put it in the file and you know organize the spices and alphabetize things right and then you show up and you're like it's all alphabetized it's magic <laughs> Well, some people love alphabetizing things and some really don't. And, you know, you write in your book about people responding to anxiety in very different ways. Can you share more about that? Yeah. There's um, some beautiful work by uh, Mary Lamia, who teaches uh, in Berkeley. And she is a uh, psychologist and a professor. And she wrote a book called... um, what motivates getting things done and it's all about anxiety but it's not anywhere in the title because you know how people feel about anxiety and um she identified two different kinds of anxiety responses or responders one is what is called a task-oriented person this is a person who likes lists alphabetizing bullet points right they want to go from thing to thing and they work with their anxiety at kind of a a a slow boil almost just like their anxiety is just continual the other person is deadline focused and they may relax up to a deadline and then hit a very intense level of anxiety which works for them and then they do it the night before. That person is generally called a procrastinator. And we have put procrastinators in the shadow and underneath the rug. And most procrastinators have learned to feel ashamed about the way that they work with their anxiety. And I think a lot of us have looked at procrastinators and thought, you are both lazy and lucky, right? We don't see it as a valid way to work with anxiety. Mm. And so that was just such a brilliant piece that, you know, I talk about Mary Lamia in the book, but to know if you are a procrastinator, that that is a perfectly acceptable way to work with your anxiety. And you've got skills and you've got magic in the way that the alphabetizing, you know, list maker does. But actually it could be that procrastinators are a bit more chill Like they can just chill up to a deadline, whereas I'm a task person. So I'm tasking, 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 tasking. I don't chill. So I've had to learn to chill. Like it's a skill now to chill. And my anxiety is like, what about that list? I'm like, stop it. I made a list. (laughs) Got it. So what I'm imagining then is that, you know, maybe a week out, anxiety is very faint. It's like a whisper. And, and the task-oriented people kind of hear it at a whisper and, and, and get in action around it. And that the deadline-oriented people actually like to wait until there is the, the energy boost, the adrenaline even, that fuels them into brilliant and rapid action. And, and easy for the task-oriented people to look and say, you're doing it wrong. Um, but, but really, that's not the case. It's just an entirely different approach. Yeah, um... This helped my relationships a lot because I have um, deadline focused people who work for me and my husband is deadline focused. And I would come with my task oriented, you know, I've got this going on, I've, I've got everything worked out. And I was so frustrated with them. And reading this 
this difference that procrastinators are, they have their own form of genius. Now I look at them and I'm like, look at you relaxing. You are, you're like a mentor for me on how to do this. <laughs> the idea is we can't change our types. Um, but I've been trying to procrastinate. I've been trying to intentionally procrastinate. I'm still not very good at it. I'm very clumsy, but I'm getting better. Wow. I think I still need to work on that. Um, so you mentioned in your writing that, that when an emotion comes up, we have opportunity, we have options about how we're going to work with it. And I think you name, we can express them, we can repress them and we can channel them. And I'm wondering if you can share more about that as it relates to anxiety. With anxiety, I think a lot of people, because they haven't really um, identified it as itself, it's mm. kind of squished up with panic, that when anxiety comes, people may feel this in, increase in energy and focus and get stuff done and just want to shut it down. They would want to repress it and just calm themselves the frack down, right? You're gonna breathe in joy and breathe out anxiety. And your anxiety's like, why is joy here? This is not a joy situation. We got some stuff to do. So a suppressing or repressing or, or intentionally down-regulating an emotion, that's an option, but you're not working with the emotion, you're working against it. And let's say your anxiety is very high and you don't really know how to work with it. And so let's, let's go express it. So you're going to run around the house. Did I turn off the stove? Um, I think we need to do wallpaper in here. And then, you know, you're just spinning around and where did I put my checkbook? Damn it. Where's my checkbook? Right. So that would be expressing it without um, consciousness right? You, you and your anxiety are on a trip to the moon, right? And you you're probably get... driving everybody else crazy during the process. <laughs> and where's your textbook, right? <clears throat> or you may focus yourself with your anxiety and get stuff done so hard that you forget to eat, mm. right? You don't take care of yourself. Okay, I can't exercise today. And you just put your head down and you put your nose to the grindstone and you go, right? And in that way, you're kind of working for your anxiety. With the suppression you're working against, with too much expression that is not, you know, you're really not conscious or aware you're working for. But with channeling, and by channeling I mean when you create a channel for something and it goes the way that it needs to go. So by channeling I mean understand what each emotion does and then pair up with it as its friend and help it. So if anxiety comes and brings you all this energy to get things done, then there's a question to ask of it, which is what brought this feeling forward? And you just sit, uh, uh, okay, this, 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 this. And then the next question is what truly needs to get done? And the truly is a kind of a downregulation. It's a kind of a grounding, but it's not a, a downregulation that's suppressive or repressive. It's a down-regulation that drops you into the wisdom of the emotion. And so with each of the emotions, we have questions that are, that are focused on that emotion's job. And, uh, and that way, you and your anxiety can work together as, as, as partners, and then you can 
um, uh, you know, uptake all the brilliance and genius and all of that energy of anxiety, but also take care of yourself at the same time. So you're not spinning and you're not working yourself like a draft horse that mm-hmm. nobody loves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, you're painting a beautiful nuanced picture of how an emotion could arise and we could say, oh, a messenger or welcome friend. Let's let's have a conversation or I'm so glad you've arrived to be with me here today. And as a clinician and just as a human, what I often see in myself and others is that an emotion comes up and my thought is, this shouldn't be happening, or I don't want this here. And then before I know it, I'm suffering about suffering, right? There, there's a, a compounding of the, of the emotion. Yeah, we call it, you're having a feeling about a feeling. You're having emotions about emotions. You're afraid of fear. You're anxious about anxiety. You're anger, angry about anger. And <clears throat> a lot of times there's like an emotion pileup. For instance, mm-hmm. if we're taught to see anxiety as a disease or a character flaw and we feel anxiety we might also feel angry or afraid or ashamed right and now we've got four emotions they all came to deal with the trouble they all came to deal with the problem now we've got four emotions do we have a practice for any of them right and so for when that happens to people I can understand why people say, you know, who wants emotions? They're a mess. Because when you get an emotion pile up like that, yeah, it it feels like a mess. It just, there's no other word for it. It feels like a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a professor of counseling psychology, I, like it or not, I'm teaching my students the DSM, right? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of all the ways that mental health challenges emerge and how we classify them. And um, I'm curious about your thoughts about the sort of the pathology paradigm being dominant in our mental health discourse versus this more empathic um, valuing paradigm that you're promoting. How do we reconcile these? It is very difficult to reconcile them. Hmm. Um, My idea of the empathic paradigm came from the neurodiversity paradigm, which I studied in my Hmm. master's thesis. And it's the idea that there's all kinds of different minds and that there's neurotypical minds and there's neurodivergent minds and they're all, they're all acceptable forms of ways that minds are. The, but the pathology paradigm is that only a neurotypical mind is the right one. And so an ADHD one, that's broken, and an autistic one, that's broken. And here's all the things we do to, to these people to make them normal which is obviously a form of violence. But it's the same with emotions. For instance, anxiety is a DSM category. It's not like, here's a human emotion, slap it into the DSM. You know, panic is a DSM category. And um, depression is a DSM category. So we're taught in the pathology paradigm that when these emotions come up, they themselves are the trouble. They themselves are the problem. And so the only way that we have to work with that is to somehow get them to go away, (laughs) to somehow shut them up and make them go away. And the empathic paradigm is these emotions are here for a reason. So what is the reason? How do we support them? How do we grow and evolve into people who can function as emotional beings in a world that has taught us to distrust and 
hate emotions. Right, and to think of emotions as inferior to reason and intellect and science. <laughs> Sorry, I grew up with um, geniuses, and I have to say, if people think that, they've never met geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> people who are, I call them head cases. People who are too thinky and not connected to their emotions can create these, you know, really intricate things that no human could live in. You know, because they don't have that, that emotional, you know, emotive understanding of the world. So I just made fun of geniuses. So <laughs> I just put, the, I put geniuses in the pathology paradigm. Excuse Ooh. me, I'll pull them back out. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing just a little bit about your own origins. And I wonder if there's anything you might share about how you, growing up in a family of geniuses, came to be a deep expert in emotion. Well, one of the reasons I talked about that is we um, we had a lot of genius in our family. Um, and so we would name things like you are the waffle making genius and you are the genius with buying cars. And you, it's like we would move genius around. And one of the areas of genius that always made everybody laugh uproariously was emotional genius. Um, and we would say an emotional genius, that's not even a thing, right? That that you couldn't have someone who was who could maintain genius or be a genius and be emotional because emotions are the anti-rational, you're out of control, you know, look at the DSM, uh, five of the seven deadly sins are emotions. The sixth is an eating disorder, the seventh is sex. What is that about? <laughs> okay, <laughs> what is going on? So, <clears throat> My first book, the first book that I wrote about this was called Emotional Genius, because I thought I'm going to take that, I'm going to take that back, mm. and I'm going to find out how could a person use genius and find the genius of emotions in a world where the emotions are so um, unloved. Wow. And you have really framed emotions as not mistaken or broken, but as sources of valuable and important information or truth about the world. And, you know, if, if we dare really get into current events, um, we are in times where um, there are things beyond our control, COVID-19 being one of them, um, that are anxiety provoking. And, and I, I'm curious about what, what when you have a lot of anxiety and there's not something you can immediately do to make it better. List making, <laughs> planning. Um, something I've noticed is that people are dealing with many mul multiple emotions right now that are necessary but are difficult if they don't have a practice for even one of them. Mm. So what I see is fear, anxiety, and panic coming together. Fear to help you be aware. Where's my mask? You know, where's my hand sanitizer? Am I going out? Do I have everything I need? Anxiety, uh, what more do I need to buy? You know, what, what do I need to do to plan for the future? Do I have enough masks, that sort of thing? And also panic because people are dying. This COVID is it's not a joke. It's 
people are getting sick and being sick for months and being injured, even if they don't die and people are dying. So panic is very much welcome in this, in this situation to help us save our lives, to help us make those decisions. And so the problem is there's so much uncertainty. Although people are trying to push certainty before they should. So the reopening, like we're going to get back to normal. Um, and the problem I see is that it's, no, it's realistic. It's increasing panic and people are getting more and more angry and more and more, you know, frustrated and more and more fighty because they're not listening to these three emotions. They're just like, slap, slap, slap. I'm not as scared, you know, don't panic. Don't be anxious. You know, go out there. You don't need a mask, that sort of thing. And all of these emotions are like, oh, gee. There should be like a support group for people's panic and anxiety and fear right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they mm-hmm. really should. All these emotions should get together and talk about their owners. Just like, really? <laughs> it reminds me of the movie Inside Out. You know, you could have a whole, you have anxiety and anxiety. They could have a whole convention. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you wouldn't believe what my person just did. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you a story. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, the other thing that we're in the middle of right now is, of course, a massive and much overdue uprising around Black Lives Matter. And you wrote so beautifully about the chronic activation of anxiety and vigilance that is necessary and appropriate in marginalized or oppressed populations. And I wonder if there's anything you might want to share about that. I think that's become so evident to us. And maybe we didn't know it or we didn't need to know Mm -hmm. it before but just the level of um unwelcome and unsafety that people of color lgbtqia people disabled people elders um that it's really not a safe place if you're at all vulnerable Mm -hmm. and these people i would call sort of sort of anxiety and panic experts because there's a way that that you need to learn to live with these emotions and you need to learn to read social situations and try to keep yourself safe in whatever way you can but how do we support people who are dealing with that level of activation all the time and a part of it is um uh working for social justice and voting out the racists and, you know, changing this from the top down, um, doing as much as we possibly can, but also taking some of this on ourselves uh, as, as white people, taking it on and, um, and f- uh, feeling it and claiming it, uh, claiming the racism, claiming the sexism, claiming the transphobia, claiming everything that we haven't had to claim before Um, but I would say um, there's so much going on about offering soothing practices to help people who are in these situations whether it be yoga or mindfulness or breathing or something so that they can have a sense of being able to downregulate, not as a repressive act but as a self-care act and yeah yeah thank you You know, it occurs to me that in order for us to be able to take these things on, we need a certain level of skill in working with our emotions. And I wonder if we could just start talking about, okay, with this wisdom, 
what, what can we do? For me, the emotions that I see people who are holding on so tightly to the old ways are an inability to grieve, to see what has happened. I see a difficulty working with um, shame. Mm. Shame is huge. Mm. And I see a difficulty working with panic and fear and anxiety. Um, someone on Twitter, and I, I wish I had grabbed it, said that this isn't an information processing issue. People don't need more information. This is a terror management issue. And so we're not seeing people's, I'm going to put the finger quotes, rational behaviors. We're seeing their emotional behaviors or lack thereof. And so giving more information to people when they're that activated is it's not going to do anything. It is connecting, humanizing, and bringing in those emotions if the people don't know how to feel them um, I'm doing that a lot now. I, for a while, I was like taking people out on Facebook. Don't tell anybody. But <laughs> I'm now going in and working with moving in and, and sort of befriending people and bringing in grief. And I can settle a whole Facebook thread. It is mm. fascinating. I mean, some people are still going off. But there will start to be a room for grief and it will become a little bit of a grief shrine in this Facebook thread where people are fighting about masks or Black Lives Matter or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm learning. I think we're all learning. Which emotions do we need to bring to this? Because the whole anger and um, rage, that's not working anymore. Also telling people, telling people what's what, that's not working anymore. Less effective, perhaps. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I am so curious about, about really what it is that you do that can settle a contentious and escalated conversation. How is it that you bring in emotional wisdom? I mean, it's sort of you working with all of the different emotions, but, um, and this is something um, Dr. David Camped is working with. Um, there's a course that he has called Empathy is Your Superpower, How White Allies Can be better at talking about racism to other white people and his idea is get people out of their ideology like don't fight ideology mm. um, get people into their stories and ask them well tell me a story about when you decided that all lives matter was a was an important thing for you right and so what I'm doing then is I'm working with my sadness which helps you let go I'm working with my grief, understanding that there's something that has happened to this person that makes them unable to empathize across lines of, of race and conflict. And so that's where, you know, I'm actually calling to my emotions to help me um, um, work the situation. And what I'm finding is that people don't want to be fighting like that. It's exhausting. And as soon as someone witnesses them and asks them a question, the whole thing settles. And then I can tell a story and we can come together. I'm not going to change things right away, right? But I'm not going to push them further into their terror management problems. And I'm not going to push them further into their ideology. Because if I fight, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a strong ideology and people are fighting with you. It just strengthens you. 
mm-hmm. just like bring it because now I'm 1000% of this ideology, right? But if someone asks you a question, there's an opening and mm. that cement that you've put around yourself begins to rehumanize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, it's sort of common dogma in counseling psychology that people need to feel understood. And I, I, would, I would actually say I'm hearing something beyond that, that people need to feel felt beyond the intellectual content of their position. They need to feel that you are getting and resonating with the actual emotion behind their perspective. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. They need to be empathized with. And that means getting getting into it, having a relationship with people. And that's mm-hmm. what I see. I mean, that started happening before 2016, but people were very proud about unfriending people. And they still are. And I'm like, where does this go? Mm-hmm. Where does this go? I know that if people are very, very toxic, we need to protect ourselves. But it, it wasn't that level of emotion that I was seeing. People were saying, ha, I unfriended that person. It was very... Um, yeah, there was a lot of intensity, not 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 sorrow, and um, I think I think people just don't know what to do with their intense emotions or how to be in conflict in such a way that they maintain their humanity and the dignity of the other person. I know I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that is a goal worth striving for, right? If our humanity is in fact at stake, I'm, I'm imagining the audience is entirely enrolled and saying, "Okay, Carla, I'm sign me up." But but I didn't grow up being taught about emotion, right? None none of us got emotions 101. Uh, so where where is the the first step? I imagine for most people, there's some emotions that they're comfortable with, and and others they'd rather never touch. What do you think we do to begin our own emotional education? Well, the, the best part of this is that it's really, really simple, which is to develop a stronger emotional vocabulary. And just doing that will help people learn to regulate their emotions. That's so funny. You know, that it doesn't have to be difficult, but what we need to do is understand emotions at many different levels of activation so that we can start to locate ourselves when our emotions come up instead of, I feel bad, right? What is, what is in bad, right? Um, to develop many, many different levels of articulation about emotion. And so over the years, I developed an emotional vocabulary list on Facebook and my website, and, and I put it up on my um, website for free so that everybody could have access to it. And I mean free, not internet free, where you have to, <laughs> you know, trade me your email address. No, no, I mean free. Um, but, uh, you know, people have challenged me about that, but I was like, there is no downside to more people having good emotional vocabularies. There's, there's no loss to me at all. It's all valuable. So yay. (laughs) Great. So, so just, can you give us an example of that? I'm imagining with anxiety, there's, there's a whole scale of intensity. Can you orient us to that just a little bit? Yeah. In the book, I have the emotional vocabulary list with each of the families. And so I have the, the list in soft, medium and intense presentations of that emotion. So soft anxiety might be apprehensive, um, concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Medium anxiety might be edgy, um, anxious, um, nervous, and intense anxiety might be um, um, uh, overwrought, um, super energized, that sort of thing, so that you can identify where you are in the in the continuum of anxiety and especially with anxiety there's been research that suggests that if you can just say to yourself okay i'm anxious you can calm down your whole um organism because many of the the sensations that go along with anxiety also go along with heart attacks if it's really high so if you can tell your body this is anxiety your body will go oh okay <laughs> that's that's great because a lot of people will show up at an emergency room with a heart attack that's anxiety and, and and panic so knowing what your emotions are can save you a lot of time and money <laughs> i believe it and yes we're so familiar with that cascade of sensation and then a thought that's catastrophized and then more sensation and more thought and pretty soon you have a panic attack <laughs> Yeah. Okay, just to play devil's advocate again, what if somebody is saying to you, okay, Carla, I can name my emotions. I'm feeling terror. I'm feeling angsty. Um, it, it doesn't make it go away. What, what might you recommend when someone is just struggling to be with it? Yeah. Well, with terror, which is, which is in panic, um, there are, first of all, we check and see are you, is your life endangered right now, right? We orient, is, is there something, is there a tiger in the room? All right, so take care of that first. And if there isn't, if there isn't any danger right now, then we generally think of this as panic or terror that come from something that happened in the past where a person was overwhelmed. And the best approach to that that I've found is somatic, um, Somatic approaches, specifically somatic experiencing, which is done by Peter Levine, where you go back and find that traumatized and, and terrified person as yourself and help them come out of whatever frozen state they're in. So it's really important. It's crucial that your emotions tell you that this has happened, that there's a part of you that's trapped, but it's it's very uncomfortable and as you know but it should be uncomfortable because there's a problem and so your emotions are trying to tell you friend friend or like this carla 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 shut up carla, 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 carla. <laughs> but with each emotion it, there are there are practices for each emotion that deal with that emotions needs and situations. Wonderful. Well, I know we don't have infinite time here, but I'm wondering if we could, if there's a practice that we could do together, how could we give people an experience of working empathically and intelligently with emotion? Let me start with one simple meditation. And if people could, um, you can have your eyes open or closed, get yourself comfortable in wh wherever you're sitting or standing. And what I'd like you to do is just lean forward a little bit. You can open your mouth a little bit if that helps. And listen for the quietest sound where you are. 
my voice is not the quietest sound. But listen through my voice to the quietest sound. And you'll find yourself going through the different sounds around you and finally finding that one quiet sound. And congratulations, you have access the softest activation of fear. It's that capacity to orient to change and novelty. And my talking was also your capacity to orient around annoying things, <laughs> your capacity to focus and keep focusing and refocusing, even though I am intentionally making noise. And a lot of people don't have any kind of physical awareness that that's fear. They would only know fear when it rose to a level of, <gasps> you know, and at that point, we're near panic, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're near feeling, you know, if there's a sense of dread or danger, then panic would need to be there because your life may need to be saved, right? But fear is just that what's going on around me and I'm orienting to it. So that is one of my favorite ways to sort of get into the emotional realm because everybody's working with fear all the time, every day, and they don't know it because fear has been, you know, squirreled together with panic and um, with anxiety too. So there's this like, so people can't bring it out. So if you're feeling fear and anxiety and panic, the questions are what's happening right now? Does anything need my attention, no, it's all good, is, am I going to be murdered right now? Mm. <laughs> nope. Okay, so the panic may be from the past. There's nothing to watch out for right now. Anxiety, what do I need to prepare? Right? And so that's a way to work with all three emotions by connecting with what each of them does. So it's very simple. We've been working with our emotions our whole lives, but we don't have language for it. And we don't know how to identify it. The emotions because they've been so um, pathologized. Mm, mm -hmm, right. You're almost describing sort of a, sort of a cabinet of allies or of, of um, yeah, um, companions on the path that can offer you different resources as needed. Yes. Yes. For instance, some people don't have enough anxiety. <laughs> and I would be like, you need to get your anxiety in there because this is due tomorrow. Let's go. <laughs> right? uh -huh. um, and that's a very unusual way to think about it. Right. Because most people yeah. would say, I don't want any of that nonsense. Yeah. 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 Well, you describe another practice in your book. I think it's, it's conscious questioning um, that, that helps bring some insight to whatever emotion is arising that, that might not be of obvious utility in the moment. Is this something you could share with us or want to talk through? I can talk through it. And um, yeah, let me just talk through it. Uh, it is in the book. Um, and gee, what, what page is it on? Here we go. Um, 
So conscious questioning for anxiety leans into the skills that anxiety brings you and the specific genius it has. So if you are listening and you can grab a, something to write with and paper or your tablet, think about something that you're anxious about right now. Um, something that is nagging at you. And on the paper or tablet, write down the answer to these questions. There's more questions than this, but I'm just going to ask a couple um, in deference to time. This is on page 85 of Embracing Anxiety. First, what are your strengths and resources? Second, are there any upcoming deadlines? Third, have you achieved or completed something similar in the past? Fourth, can you delegate any tasks or ask for help? And fifth, what is one small task that you can complete tonight or today? Mm. Just something small. There are more questions in this, in this practice. But basically what we're doing, notice that none of them were about artificially calming ourselves and stepping away from the anxiety. They were all leaning into the anxiety and treating anxiety as if it had its own intelligence mm -hmm. and was here for a reason to help us. Or as Rumi says, all of the emotions have been sent as a gift from beyond. Welcome them all. Um, anxiety is a lovely, it's a lovely unloved misunderstood emotion and um, we literally couldn't get anything done without it. Mm. Um, it. Our confusion about it, its connection to panic, I have a whole chapter on panic and anxiety and we call it panxiety. <laughs> we just make up words for emotions that like to hang out together. Um, but also in this chapter about conscious questioning, what happens if you do conscious questioning and your energy drops? What happens if you get more anxious? What happens if you feel depression coming on? What happens if you're confused? Then I send you to a chapter where we look at those other emotions as well. So um, it doesn't mean you're bad at anxiety. It means there's another emotion there trying to help you. Thank you for that experience. I'm looking forward to hearing how our listeners experienced that and what their feedback might be. Um, a question that came up for me was about the so-called positive emotions. And I don't, we want to, we don't want to say emotions are good or bad, but joy, contentment, what should we know about these experiences? <laughs> um, one of the first things that we learn in DEI is that there are no negative emotions and there are no positive emotions. And 
that's really hard for people because that's that's probably the only thing people do know about emotions. <laughs> There's good right. ones and bad ones. Um, the positive emotions, you're right, uh, happiness, contentment, and joy, or or permutations thereof. There's three lovely emotions, and they're so valuable and so beautiful, and they have just really specific jobs that nobody seems to understand because people want to slap these emotions on top of everything. Uh. Right. I'm feeling anxious. Breathe in joy. And joy's like, what are you even talking about right now? I don't even know where you're going with this, but okay. Uh, and anxiety's like, really? I, oh. So, so the, the, the positive emotions tend to get overused and even in some cases abused. We tend to behave in abusive ways toward these emotions because we are not taught to see them as three members of a 17-member family band, and none of which is more or less important than the others. And I, I have a, um, a group of 17 emotions. Of course, there's all these, you know, gradations of emotions. So there's all these words, but I'm like, sort of, this is anger. This is hatred. This is sadness. Um, so we have 17, like, big daddy categories. Um, <clears throat> but happiness, contentment, and joy tend to get overused for almost everybody, unless people are dealing with depression or other uh, emotional states where these emotions can't peek their head through. But um, thinking of them as positive causes, if I tell you an emotion is negative and you feel it a lot, there might be an emotion pile up because you shouldn't do that, so you're going to have shame and fear and sadness and grief and blah, 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 and depression. Just about this one emotion. But if I tell you an emotion is positive, which means wanted, which means pro-social, which means pleasant, and you don't feel it very often, you are also going to have an emotion pile up of depression and shame and fear and da da blah, blah. So just saying that emotions are negative and positive makes people essentially emotionally incompetent right away. <laughs> Like immediately, I'm going to make you emotionally incompetent. Um, and so we end up chasing after the three positive emotions as if they're prizes at the fair mm. instead of emotions that live inside us and are accessible in every moment. And we throw away the 14 supposedly negative emotions as if they are character flaws or bugs that we don't want. And what we end up with is a very arid desert where there should be so much water and so much emotion and uh, all this genius and gifts and skills. And we end up having this very barren landscape. And so when an emotion comes up, all we need to, all we know how to do is just run to happiness, contentment, and joy. Mm. And so I think we're going to have to like, like happiness, contentment, and joy are going to have a strike. <laughs> Well, they do go on strike sometimes, right? They do go on strike. It's like, we've had it with you. We have had it with you. You're the worst boss we've ever had. Are we getting paid extra? No, we're not. <laughs> wow. Okay, emotionally incompetent, fundamentally as a society. Um, I, I want to ask you for your message to different populations. So I'm sure there are parents out there going, oh my goodness, am I raising emotionally incompetent children? Um <laughs> What is it that parents can do to support emotional nuance and, and generosity with their children? That's, 
difficult. What I in I've written a children's book, but it it breaks all the rules of children's books. So I'm gonna have to find like a really brilliant agent to help me with this. But I did put the anxiety part of the children's book in the back of embracing anxiety. And what I teach is help kids develop a vocabulary for their emotions and teach them to play with their emotion when they're calm so that you have a way to talk to them about their emotion when they're just hanging out and you have a way to play with emotions. Um, so here's some of the things uh, you would do with the kids. Um, Pretend that you have to clean your room if you want to go camping this weekend, but you keep putting it off and off and off. Ask your anxiety to help you get moving. Um, pretend that you have a ridiculously hard job like building a working bicycle out of marshmallows. Where do you start and who could help you? Right? So we give, I give the kids an anxiety yeah. situation and then have them develop skills around that. So that you could say when the kid is running around and it's just too much, like, remember the bicycle made of marshmallows? Are you asking for help? Or something along those lines. So that you develop a language with kids around their emotions. Beautiful. And I imagine our doing our own work as parents is essential to being able to model that for children, not just telling them what to do, but actually showing them with our own process what what channeling emotion looks like. And what's so nice about kids is they will call you out every time you make a mistake. Okay, well then here's a different question. You know, this is CIIS. There are probably a lot of therapists and students becoming therapists in the audience. And um, as clinicians, we get the request all the time, um, my emotions hurt, can you make them better? And I wonder what wisdom you have for folks who are um, professional feeling making betters, or at least that's sort of how we get identified. Yeah, I would say that there are things that you can do to help a person become more comfortable, like learning. I have, I think, six or seven skills in here for learning how to ground yourself, how to set boundaries, how to focus. Um, how to soothe yourself, how to choose and work with the emotions intentionally, right? So that it's not all just, let's have grief and anxiety and panic all day, yay. <laughs> but, but to learn ways to care for yourself that are not emotionally suppressive, because many self-care activities mm. look for happiness, contentment, and joy. And so they're overusing those three emotions and not working with the others. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of what I call empathic mindfulness skills in my work because I want people to work directly with emotion so that they have that experience. Like that focusing practice is a part of grounding, the, the listening. So now we're working with fear and the other part of grounding is working with sadness. Boundaries is anger. You know, there's all different ways that we can work with emotions and become friends with them. So that people, if they're dealing with very painful emotions, help them find where that emotion is at that listening place where fear is. Mm. Help them drop down and then learn the skills and gifts of that emotion. And why is it so high in you? What's, what's its purpose? What is it doing there? Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Well, I want to take this line of questioning one step further. Um, if somebody said, okay, Carla McLaren for president, we, we are so enrolled in what you're up to here. We're going to put 
you know, several billion dollars into making the world better because um, we now have this understanding of emotions. What might we do? What might we implement? What's your wildest dream here? Let's get my children's book published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say um, to the extent that we can, let's get everybody a, a healthy emotional vocabulary. Mm. And let's learn to welcome emotions as the genius that they are because we've tried it the other way and look where we are. Mm -hmm. Look what happened when we were taught to be cruel to a foundational aspect of our own psyches. Wow. And if we're cruel to aspects of our own psyches, it's not such a big leap to be cruel to another human or to an animal. So are you suggesting that sort of the starting place is within our own psyches, becoming welcoming and honoring and respectful of what shows up there? Mm -hmm. And then you can sort of spread it out into your networks as long as you don't act like a jerk on Facebook like I did. I got over it, okay? It's just pissed off. But I tried it out. I mean, when I say acting like a jerk, you wouldn't even know it, but I know that I'm acting like a jerk. You're like, well, Carla, it seemed like you were making sense. I was like, no, I was scoring points. Mm. I was being a jerk. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, Carla, I've asked you so, so many questions, and I want to just say, what have we not touched on? What is important to surface here today? Just, I think that... Everyone is an emotional genius underneath all of our bad training. Mm. You can see it when there's a death and suddenly there's a beautiful grief ritual that just springs up out of nowhere. Where do people get the candles? I don't know, right? Where do those flowers come from? Why do they know to walk quietly and sing? We know inside ourselves. Emotions are here and they've been talking to us our whole lives long. They are ready and willing and able to help us shift and it's not difficult. You would think it's really, really hard. It's not difficult. You do have to kind of remind yourself, wait, depression is good? No, yeah. <laughs> depression is yeah. useful because it feels like crap. But, um, but to understand that emotions are never the problem, they come to help us deal with the problem. Mm. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. you. You grace us with your insight here. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.